Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. This week, author Robert Gordon returns to conclude the discussion about his book, Respect Yourself, Stax Records and the Soul Explosion. In this episode, Robert and Nate discuss the second era of Stax, Al Bell's vision, the superstardom of Isaac Hayes, the epic Watts Stax Music Festival, and how Memphis's greatest record label collapsed in the 1970s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by author Robert Gordon. We're here for part two uh, of his book, Respect Yourself, Stacks Records and the Soul Explosion. Robert, welcome back. Thanks, Nathan. Glad to be back. And uh, and so in the first half uh, of the episode last week, we talked about the first half of the book, which you called Integration. Uh, it tells the story of the unlikely founding of Stacks Records by uh, a white brother and sister who basically through luck, move into set up a studio in a black neighborhood in Memphis and have an incredible influx of talent and the good sense and open ears and open hearts to to accept that talent and bring it to the world. But you call part two independence. And it's really right. the story of Al Bell, the man who took the torch from Jim Stewart and his sister Estelle Axton. And, and uh, what kind of circumstances did Al Bell find himself in in 1968 uh, when he really took over leadership of the company? So Al Bell is a, an, an, an African-American disc jockey come businessman um, who uh, joined Stacks in 1965 as a promotions director with a promise of some equity in the company. In 1968, Dr. King is assassinated around the corner from Stax at the motel where the Stax people hang out to swim in the pool and a place where the coffee shop will serve an integrated table. So the, you know, time, they, they feel that assassination especially closely. Not only is it their spiritual leader, it's in their spiritual second home. Al, after Dr. King's assassination, wants to claim some of that equity. He says, you know, you told me I could have part of this company. Let's make that happen. And Jim, not easily, not quickly, not simply, but finally uh, helps uh, sides with Al, pushes his sister Estelle out of the company. Uh, Estelle's control is sold to Al um, in this, uh, complicated deal that brings in some corporate money because Al is the one who, so, so th there's like a, there's three things that happen. Dr. King's assassinated Atlantic, which has dis distributed stacks since its inception, Atlantic and stacks break up. So stacks needs a new distributor and, um, Otis and the Barquets are killed. So the spirit at Stacks is very low. And while everybody's kind of in shock, Al sees, Al is the one who can see 
a future, and he fires everyone up. He says, we are going to come back. We're going to begin with some tapes in the vaults. We're going to then record like mad. And since we don't have a catalog, we're going to create an instant catalog. And he's a very inspiring speaker and doer, Al Bell is. So people kind of snapped from their despair and joined him in this effort. And it did generate a stacks come back. Um, the first song, one, one thing Al does is he brings in new talent behind the board, meaning as a producer, he's, he's been envious of the crossover success that Motown has. So he brings a producer down from Detroit and, and gives him Johnny Taylor, who is, who has come from stacks, who has come from gospel to sing blues and soul and is having a very good career and a successful career, but a modest career. Um, and, and instead of putting Booker T and the MGs behind him, the new guy sort of mixes it up with some of the MGs and some other players and they get together and, and immediately Stacks part two sets itself aside with its, with this first big hit because it doesn't sound like Booker T and the MGs in, in the first year of stacks, all the songs, all the stack songs are pretty quickly identifiable as, Oh yeah, that's a stack song. You can hear Booker T and the MGs at the root and the songs have a, um, a personality, a shared personality. But with Johnny Taylor, this guy has him cut a song called uh, Who's Making Love to Your Old Lady While You Were Out Making Love. And it's such a different approach. It's such a hit that, uh, you know, in retrospect, we see that Al Bell's intention was to go from the sound of stacks to the sound of hits. And let's hear it. Johnny Taylor, Who's Making Love. Give me now. And that was written, uh, that was produced by Don Davis, who Al Bell brought in right. from Detroit, and, and written by a new songwriting team that emerged uh, right there at Stacks. They called themselves We Three. It was Raymond mm-hmm. Jackson, Betty Crutcher, and Homer Banks. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they just go on a tear with Johnny Taylor. And, and, you know, that's the first hit, but not the last. And it's no, no, no. things are, and it's great too, because they need that. You know, they need, that tells them, one, that they still have talent in the studio, two, that they can, that without Atlantic, they can get a record out and, and, and sell it, you know? So it's a very important moment. And, and meanwhile, shit's hitting the fan around Memphis. Obviously when Dr. King is assassinated, there's immediate riots in Memphis and stacks because of its beloved status in the neighborhood is spared the initial, uh, ravages of the riots, which virtually destroy the whole neighborhood. But then because it survives the, the, the riots, it becomes this oasis that's just too attractive, and certain young punks in the neighborhood start to yeah. move in. And this is a period in time when the line between thuggery and black activism was very thin. I mean, you had militants like the Black Panthers and Stokely Carmichael uh, changing the tone of black activism such that opportunists like these punks uh, on the streets of Memphis start mugging the musicians. And then Al Bell's solution is to bring in this guy, Johnny Baylor from New York. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Johnny so, Baker, Baylor. The solution becomes the problem when Johnny Baylor, he has earned his tufts on the streets of Harlem. He's from Birmingham, but he's gone up early. He's, he's in Sugar Ray Leonard's boxing camp. He's scared of nothing, you know, the... The, the right side of the law means little to him. Um, and so he's able to easily dispose of this, you know, Stax neighborhood gang 
And then he, he's been dabbling in the music business up north. He's got this one, he's found a talent, Luther Ingram. And so he's trying to make Luther Ingram a star. And he looks around stacks and goes, yeah, I kind of like it here. I think I'll stay. And, um, and stacks at that time, uh, finds out they need help because they've got a new star on the rise. Can we go to Isaac Hayes? Yeah, let's talk about the soul explosion first. So part of okay. part of Al Bell's, uh, and there's a great quote from Al Bell about, you know, when when all the shit hits the fan that he wants to to um, what I had in mind as a business person was go into the marketplace with strength. And this is a guy who's assuming the leadership of a record label that's lost its biggest star, lost its distribution deal, and lost its entire back catalog. So he conceives right. this notion to produce what twenty eight albums in yeah. Six. I think they were going for like 30 albums and 30 singles in, you know, I think it was like eight or 10 months time altogether uh, from conception to execution. Yeah, they had a big weekend, two weekends in a row in Memphis where they released a slew of product and introduced the, the new catalog, um, yeah. which they called the, the Soul Explosion. That was the name of the, of the weekend. Yeah, from autumn of 68 to May of 69, they recorded 28 albums and 280 songs. They had to record a song and a half a day in that page, <laughs> <laughs> which is just incredible. And because of this, because of this huge flood of product, Isaac Hayes, who hadn't been seen as a singer or performer, he's, he's just part of the songwriting and production team, steps forward and does a solo album that's really unique at this point in African-American music, Hot Buttered Soul. Tell us about that album. So a number of anomalies make up that album. One, you know, you're, you're still in the, in the songs over three minutes. It's starting to get out of the hit range, you know. DJs like it short. And the shortest song on the Isaac Hayes album is five minutes. The longest one is 18 minutes. Nobody's going to play an 18-minute song, but what was it, 1969, it comes out. So, like, right then the FM world is opening up, and the nighttime DJs love an 18-minute song. So he, Isaac uh, records, by the time I get to Phoenix, which has already been a hit for Glenn Campbell and someone else, and, and, uh, and this song starts to get played. It's weird, too, because no one's... Isaac has said to Al, can I make, you know, if we're doing this whole explosion of recordings, can I make one? And Al says, yes, of course. And Isaac says, can I do it my way? And Al says, carte blanche. So Isaac really is, has no commercial intentions. He's making it just for himself. And so the cover, where the covers have been very traditional presentations of the performer, Isaac, in the age of the giant afro, have a shaved head. And this this album cover features the shaved head, you know, sort of taken from above. And um, it's just like, it shouldn't, nothing about this should make it a hit. And it, and and yet everything about it makes it a hit. And, and uh, so Isaac be becomes this surprise star right as the second half of Stax is taking off. Yeah, and they put together a two-weekend music conference uh, to to release the albums, and and uh, they spend a quarter million dollars on this, but they book two million dollars in orders. So Al Bell, right out the gate, uh, is 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 a huge success as a businessman, and the audacity. I mean, it's the audacity of hope, uh, if if you can quote President Barack Obama in this context. And but let's hear. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear Isaac's Walk On By, which is a version of a Backrack David song made famous by Dionne Warwick. And it yeah. was like nothing that had ever come out in American pop and the music up to that point. <laughs> and I start to cry each time we meet. And walk on by. Walk on. And that was Isaac Hayes' complete reinterpretation of the Backrack David classic, Walk On By. And, I mean, it, this is before What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Uh, this, this is really the dawn of the era of African-American album artists. 
Yeah, exactly. And 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 Isaac sort of with no intention to be the spearhead of that becomes the spearhead of that of that movement in time. Um, another important thing to note about that walk on by is because I didn't realize this until I was working on the book. You have Isaac and da- Isaac has this partnership with David Porter, which works with basically Isaac doing most of the music and David doing most of the words. They each contributed to both, but you know they had their their specialties. And when Isaac makes this solo album, he makes it. He's not working with David, and it and Walk On By as an example really kind of begins his career of reinterpretations because he's not the lyric man he can take other people's songs and hear them and and play them in a very unique way in a very Isaac Hayes kind of way but he doesn't do as much songwriting it's really not until Shaft that he uh that he writes any you know lyrics and even then it's not a, a lot of lyrics but it's enough um, but yeah, so Isaac Hayes, uh, becomes this new African-American superstar who begins to cross over. It's sort of what Stax has always wanted. They, they get their crossover star in Isaac. Yeah. And, and he develops this new look with, you know, the bald head and he, and he, he recognizes that he sweats an incredible amount on stage and he just goes with it wears very little clothing on stage a bare chest with gold chains leather vests and and becomes a whole new kind of sex symbol for the 70s but as we talked about in the first episode once again uh the same things that spark their triumph are the seeds of their downfall not only is the isaac isaac hayes and david porter songwriting team and production team basically broken up over this Right. But but because Isaac uh, becomes a touring performer and suddenly realizes that he needs somebody with some muscle paid. to get yeah. paid, and so he develops a very close relationship with the infamous Johnny, Johnny Baylor. And, yes. and Johnny, go ahead. Johnny has arrived. Johnny's arrived at Stacks to you know clear out this gang problem, and just then Isaac is breaking out, and and Johnny becomes Isaac's road manager. Johnny becomes, as you said, the muscle. He carries the gun, literally, that makes sure that Isaac gets paid. So Johnny brings a lot of dark forces wherever he goes because he rules by might, you know, by by brute force. And um, and the stories when I started asking people about Johnny Baylor, man, you know, I got some really sick stories of him beating people up sometimes for no real reason. One guy lost an eye at, at the hands of Johnny, uh, Johnny Baylor. Um, so, so Isaac's growth assigns Johnny Baylor power. Johnny edges, you know, Johnny makes sure that Isaac's good friend, David Porter doesn't have access. Um, Johnny gloms onto Isaac and, and grows with Isaac. I remember one of the later period promotion men telling me that whenever they went out carrying like six new singles, they always hoped one would be an Isaac Hayes because those were easy to push. Yeah, and not only do they lose uh, the the Hayes-Porter songwriting team, but the Memphis Horns, um, Wayne Jackson, has, there's this great quote, and it's it's a really sad moment in the documentary when Wayne Jackson breaks up in the tears talking about the breakup of the Porter Hayes songwriting team. He says, they told David to stay away from Isaac. Well, there went all the magical songs, man, gone. And that was the day that Andrew Love and I went to Jim and told him we'd like to be off the payroll so we could go on yeah. down the road. And and so, you know, Booker T and the MGs have basically moved out to California around this time. Doc, Doc Dunn, is, or Booker T moves to California. Doc Dunn spending more time at the golf course and playing in the studio and, and then the Memphis horns walk out the door. So as and, much and as they're growing, they're going to follow shortly. Yeah. Yeah. And, he's and, gonna, yeah. Everyone's uh, going. Yeah. And, and the, so the, you know, Steve Cropper and Al Bell had had a falling out on the 67 tour and, and, right. and, uh, and basically all you were able to get Cropper to say was my stick was taken away. 
And you never got to the bottom of what what was said between Bell and Cropper, did you? So apparently, the, on the '67 tour, there was a power conflict between Stephen Albell and and Steve Cropper. Said, you know, there were things said in the room that night that I will never forget. So apparently, you know, words were said in very tense circumstance. There's been this conflict all along of uh, a white-owned company that is having success with black music and Jim and Estelle listen to their employees and and bring in Al Bell and give him equity. Ultimately, you know, the, the black activism at Stax becomes so strong that Jim is no longer really comfortable showing up there and ultimately sells his half of the company to Al Bell, who becomes the, the sole owner. Yeah, and Bell brings in Gulf and Western Paramount uh, to finance that first trade. And it's it's one of, I think, three uh, uh, business deals that Al Bell Major. cuts um, yeah. in, this, in the 70s. But I want to get to one more story of division that, that rises up around this time that hits pretty hard. And, and that's a split between... Duck Dunn, the, the white bass player of Booker T and the MGs, and Al Jackson Jr., the black drummer of Booker T and the MGs. I mean, these guys, being a rhythm section for a band like that is a very intimate and close relationship. And all of a sudden, after MLK's killed, Al Jackson won't even talk to Duck Dunn for a while. What was the story there? Well, I, uh, symptomatic of the times, I think, um, you know, r- rumors begin to swirl. And... Um, and as you as you noted, these two guys had been playing together basically since since Duck was a teen. Al, Al was a bit older, but they had quite a deep bond. They in the time when race mixing, as they called it, was you know uncommon and infrequent. These people, these two guys, and their families were hanging out together all the time. So when Duck becomes aware that Al is not speaking with him, he ultimately you know he tries to. To figure out what's going on, and, and ultimately there's a confrontation in which um, Al says Al tells Duck basically that he's heard that Duck, you know, is using the N word and and and, and uh, about Al, and and Duck is flabbergasted because it's completely unlike him, and and you know, having it out in the open between them is what allows them to reconcile. And the two of them stay with Stax for years more. Al until his unfortunate murder, and, and Duck is there until the end of the company. So those two guys stay. Booker leaves in, I think, 69. Steve Cropper leaves in 70 or 71. The whole, you know, what's happening in the second period is the redefining of sex records. Yeah, and, and there's a, a description of, of, you know, what goes on in the context of this sudden growth, Al Bell hiring all these new people, he closes the record store and puts Estelle out, and yep. and and all these new people are coming in, and you, you capture this moment where, and this is a quote from your book, when the newbies don't know the forebearers and everyone's wondering who everyone else is, is perhaps the full realization of the corporation, a mind with no memory and a body with no soul. As somebody who works in a corporation, I have to say that is a brilliant summation of the corporate experience. I love the quote you're <laughs> And I remember like that, uh, you know, when someone described to me that they were, that they that they looked around one day at Stacks and realized, like, who are all these people? I, I realized that, you know, it's like, okay, that's an image I've got to build because it says it all. It's gone from a family to this, yeah, corporation. So good. <laughs> it makes me feel good. Um, <laughs> I mean, because I put a lot of work into this, you know, this, this is, a, I was very passionate about the story and I wanted it. I wanted to tell a lasting story. And I, and I feel like the story's got, you know, ramifications much more than just the history of music. And I, I wanted to pack it with all that stuff. Yeah, this is American. 
American history. This is business history. Yeah, this is yeah. racial history, social history, uh, all told. Corporate conglomerate history. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Steph's telling me it's time for our next musical selection. And this is, and this is a Johnny Baylor production with the guy you mentioned, Luther Ingram, another real break, uh, from what Stax has, has done before. This is, uh, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. If being right means being without you, I'd rather live a wrong doing life. Your mom and daddy say it's a shame, it's a downright disgrace. But long as I got you by my side. And that was Luther Ingram's classic, If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how Johnny Baylor brought that song into stacks. Yeah, so so the thug, Johnny Baylor, had found this talent, Luther Ingram. And as Johnny gained control of Isaac Hayes' touring times, uh, he made Luther the opening act, where the Barquets had been the opening act. The Barquets, after the Otis Redding plane crash, they reform rather quickly because the two surviving guys, there was one who was not on the plane, one musician not on the plane, James Alexander, and then the survivor of the plane crash, Ben Cauley. They reformed the Barquets. And then they sort of have a Johnny Baylor kind of pushes them out and form and lets Isaac create the movement, the Isaac Hayes movement. And the opening act for that tour becomes Luther Ingram. So Johnny um, produces Luther Ingram. I talked to some musicians who worked with Johnny Baylor in the studio, and they all said it was production by intimidation. It does not seem like the easiest way to get a hit, but obviously here it worked. And um, Johnny was trying to make Luther into this sort of uh, Isaac Hayes-like, you know, boudoir balladeer. And and, uh, the song takes off and it gets included in the Wattstacks film as well, you know, which was a, which was a great promotion that, Albell devised for the label. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that. The the Watt Stacks uh, first came to me uh, as a documentary, which was part of Albell's unique vision at this time as a as a record producer. Not only does he conceive of basically a black Woodstock, and he books the L.A. Coliseum, and this is a Coliseum that you know the the Los Angeles Raiders regularly failed to sell out yeah. in the eighties, and and. Uh, Stax manages to draw 112,000 people in there. Beautiful sunny day, no violence, no disturbances, and you know the LAPD was chomping at the bit to stir up some shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Al Al was trying to keep them out. You know, I mean, he made a deal, uh, you know, a security deal that also employed a lot of African Americans. I mean, he was, and he only charged a dollar at the door because, and all the money went to food bank. I mean, it was really designed to be a community event for and by the people. Um, and, and the conception of Wattstack is important because this is at the point when Jim Stewart is ready to sell to Al Bell. So Al Bell, who owns half of Stacks, has the opportunity to become the sole owner if he can raise the money. So he says, he, he realizes if he could pull off this big concert in Los Angeles where Stax is much less known than they are on the East Coast, and if he can make, you know, Al was all about the parlay. He'll do the concert. The concert will lead to not just a an album, but actually a double album. And not just one double album, but then a sequel double album. And in addition to that, it will also become a movie. And the movie will, you know, feature the important bands from the label and promote them. And it will introduce Richard Pryor, who's just been signed to Stax. I mean, Al Bell had a plan every which way to Sunday and, and, and figured correctly that if Stax could be behind all of that, then someone big like Columbia Records, uh, which was the biggest, now it's Sony records, the biggest then and now the biggest record distribution company in the world that they would want to play 
they would go, oh, that's a giant. We need them. And come and Columbia was um, all their hits were white oriented. They 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 had failed everything they try to do with uh, African American artists, in, including they had had Aretha Franklin long before Atlantic had her. And while they had some minor attention with her, they could never get her to be a hit. Um, so that that's an indication, sort of, of of their need. So Al and the head of Al attracted the attention of uh, Clive Davis, the head of Columbia, and they make they make this big deal. It's really on the back of Isaac Hayes and on the back of the success of Watts Tax that he forges this deal. Am I getting ahead of you? Or yeah, before we before going? we get into Clive Davis and the whole Columbia, what ends up being a disastrous debacle for both Stacks, ultimately for Stacks. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Isaac Hayes because there's the career capstone we really haven't covered, which was the Shaft yeah. soundtrack. And uh, it's it's the apotheosis of Isaac Hayes, and and again, it's another one of these Stax records flukes where you know uh, Isaac has the songs basically together, but he doesn't have the key sound until uh, a guitarist Charles Skip Pitts uh, is in the studio messing around warming up, and he starts playing with his wah wah pedal just to make sure his equipment's working, and Hayes seizes on that, and the sound of the funk seventies is born. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's just, you know, uh, Skip Pitts told me, man, I was just, you know, warming up. And Isaac said, what's that? And Skip says, I'm warming up. Isaac says, do it again, you know, and, 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 and they create that shaft sound. Um, I love too that the, the rhythm, the, the 16th note drum beats, those come from, Isaac pulls a uh, movieola into the studio and tells the drummer, you see him crossing the street there, you know, mark that time. And that creates the, the rhythm. And then the warm up creates the sound. And then Isaac is actually for the theme song, the, the title song for that, uh, for shaft. He's learned like the day before the session is, is going to end that for a song to be considered for the uh, best soundtrack, um, it has to have lyrics. And so he's done this as an, an all instrumental and write, writes those song lyrics. You know, who is the man? Just talk about Shaft. He writes that in the back of the limo on the way to the studio, surrounded by three beautiful women who are the background. Yeah. It's perfect, man. You couldn't write it. Hollywood couldn't write it better than that. Yeah, it would be totally ridiculous. And also the collision of cultures uh, between the Stax crew, who are these, you know, studio veterans, and the Hollywood yeah. soundtrack people who, you know, have the charts all ready for the sheet music to be laid out. And when Isaac shows up and says, we don't got no sheet music, you know, <laughs> these Hollywood people think they're about to witness a debacle. And instead, yeah. Isaac and, and the crew, you know, cut two days work in one day and, and are finished an hour and a half early. So it's an enormous yeah. triumph uh, there. But... One thing I noticed, you know, when I watched the Watch Stacks documentary as a kid is that Isaac Hayes, for all his greatness and his charisma and his image, he never became a real Otis Redding. Like, I, I really felt the absence of Otis Redding when I watched that because Isaac is a fairly static stage performer and and he kind of peters out around this time. Like, he 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 repeated the Hot Butter Soul formula several times until he mm -hmm. kind of ran it into the ground, although those albums are all, they all reward a lot of listening, but, but the, you know, there's not that next step until you get to the Shaft soundtrack, but then there's really never a follow-up to the Shaft soundtrack, and that's sort of the beginning of the end of Isaac Hayes as a superstar. Yes, yes, he's still putting, you know, what's remarkable is that in that time, he's putting out basically two records a year. Sometimes one of them is a double album. There's like two or three years where he is just, you know, crunching out the music. And I agree with you that it becomes formulaic. It actually, as it evolves, I think the record's called Joy. It might be his last one on Stacks or second to last. He starts getting into the disco sound, you know. It's preceding disco and it's like, uh, it's sort of it's sort of feeling out the ground for for where disco is 
going to go and, and he'll never have that disco hit that he, that, you know, he kind of wants because it becomes the pop sound. And because I think he doesn't get it because he's just too rooted in, in real music, not machine music, as it were, you know, you can't really overstate how huge he was in the early seventies. It's like 69 to 73. He is, you know, he, he's as big, he's huge. He's huge. And Al Green is huge too in the same, from the same town. It's kind of interesting and totally, totally different. And yet neither of them is a notice reading. Um, Isaac on stage, as you note, you know, he's sort of sitting, he spends a lot of time at the keyboard. So, and when he gets up to sing, he's a fashion monster, but he's not a dancer. And, and Otis learned to uh, move on stage, you know. He's kind of clunky in a really, Otis is, in a really charming way because he's just this bundle of energy spewing out, trying to get out, you know, trying to break the skin and get out. Yeah, and 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 the you know the loss of Otis. We talked about that at the end of the last episode. That's just you know I think all we can do is be thankful that we had him. But but Stax passes the torch. You know of the leadership. They were so lucky that Isaac emerged as a star when he did, and they were also lucky in some business relationships that they had. They were able to borrow some money from a local bank, the Union Planters National Bank there in Memphis, who uh, made a pretty substantial loan. But because of Isaac's massive success and the other hits they were having, they were able to pay back that first loan in five months, which yeah, it was yeah. Which it's an of the remarkable income that Stax was generating. Um, that they had gone, you know, it's it's, a, it's an indication of the comeback. They had become bigger, you know. That Johnny Taylor record we talked about at the beginning of this episode, it was their biggest selling record to date. It outsold anything that Otis had done. Um, so they, they achieve this radical new height and it kind of gets them in trouble. As you've pointed out their you know, their lessons are also their curse because they're able to pay back this loan so fast. The bank says, Hey, you guys need to take another loan and then another loan and stacks begins getting a lot of money out. It's important. They need this this money because Al Bell, who's running the company has what I've determined to be a, you know, separate agenda, that being to create and, and strengthen an African-American middle class. He wants to hire people, wants to hire black people and pay them well. And at Stax, he does that almost with no regard for the bottom line. And the money is circulating so fast, coming from the record sales, uh, coming from the bank. Um, you know, they're they're beginning to inv- their Stax begins to get into all these wild investments, Broadway plays, and basketball teams, and just like there's just money everywhere. Um, and it becomes its curse. Are we, are we going, are we going to begin to talk about the demise? Yeah, let's, I want to touch on Rufus Thomas's third comeback and the Staples singers who joined the fold, uh, you okay, know, good. as examples of the continuing just rich fecundity of the musical wellspring they tapped into. I mean, it, there was a period when it just seemed like they could do no wrong. I mean, Rufus Thomas yeah. becomes a bigger star in the early seventies than he'd ever been in the fifties or sixties. Yeah. With, those, with, with a series of, funky songs, the uh, funky, led by the funky chicken, which, uh, you know, he gets to do it stat at uh, Watt Stacks. It, it's note, you have to note that, you know, he's got the first hit and the and a bunch of early hits at Stacks, Walking the Dog being one of my all-time favorites. But then by 67, when they go to Europe, he's not invited. He's like, he's sort of an old buddy-duddy at that point. And, and so... In 72, when he comes back with the Funky Chicken and he plays at Wattstacks and he has a whole series of new hits, the push and pull, all these dance crazes, um, it is 
it is, you know, like you said, it's his third comeback. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and this is a guy that they didn't even bother to release uh, his album during the Soul Explosion. They did the album art and, and everything, but, you know, they put out 28 albums, but not 29 because they didn't have time to finish yeah. Rufus's album. So it must have been pretty sweet for him to enjoy that third comeback. And then they bring in Pop Staples and the Staples Singers, who had been a gospel group, you know, touring the gospel circuit in the 50s with, with Sam Cooke way back in the day. Yes. And, 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 and they're ready to open themselves up. They're not ready to go pop when they come to stats, but they're ready to go to message music, you know, songs with a message, not necessarily a church message. And when they first arrive at stats, Steve Cropper is producing them. And he, and I always love to point out this great overlooked song of theirs called, when will we be paid for the work we've done? Which I think is a phenomenal message of the, you know, of the late sixties, the sanitation worker strike era, the idea of, you know, blacks contributing to the nation, but not getting the monetary recognition for it. And then Al Bell, who had been a DJ and always, and also a concert promoter and had had a longstanding relationship with the staple singers. You know, it's when he gets power that they sign to stacks. And after a couple, uh, one or two records with Steve Cropper, they go with Al Bell down to Muscle Shoals um, and record their probably their career biggest hits, both with him. Um, one is uh, Respect Yourself, and the other is uh, what is the other one called? I'll like, take you there. And, I'll take uh, you there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I was glad you mentioned the Muscle Shoals thing because I find that to be, you know, one of the big ironies. Muscle Shoals, uh, <laughs> you know, Rick Hall and Fame Studios got their big break in large part because of Steve Cropper refusing to work with Wilson Pickett. So Jerry Wexler takes Wilson Pickett and ultimately Aretha Franklin down to Muscle Shoals and, and they become this legendary studio. And then later on, Al Bell uh, and Johnny Baylor both uh, use Muscle Shoals to record a number of Stax hits. Uh, there at the you know rivals, I guess they never went over to American Studios with Chips Woman Moman and Bobby Womack, but uh, you know you couldn't uh, break bread with your rivals much more than cutting your hits in their studio with their band. I pressed Al on that because I was like, why? You know, you have a studio at your fingertips that you don't have to pay for with a band you're familiar with. You know, musicians you're familiar with. Why'd you go there? And he had a great answer. He said. At Stax, everyone knew him, and they knew him as the executive and not as a record producer. And he felt like he couldn't gain their respect. He, he said, you know, he says, when I'm the producer, I can't call the flat. You know, he doesn't have a Yeah, I don't know flat from sharp is the exact quote that you got from yeah. him. I'm, I'm the other stuff. And so... I'm the other stuff, exactly. So he's in there making sure that, that the spirit is right and the feel is right and the emotions right, which he gets, you know, a hundred percent down in Muscle Shoals. Those musicians don't know him as an executive or a producer, so they treat him with the respect they would give anyone who comes in. And and it, it made sense to me when when he when when he explained that. Yeah, it made me think of Andrew Lou Goldham, the the producer, infamously non-musical producer of the Rolling Stones. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, very similar. But but now we can get to Columbia Records and Clive Davis. And Clive Davis is a guy who who brought Columbia into the rock era on the heels of Monterey pop. You know, signing right. Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company, signing Moby Grape, and 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 gets into rock in a big way has a huge run in the seventies and, and, and stacks for him is like you said earlier, kind of the last jewel in his crown. he wants to get into R and B and African-American music in a big way. And the two of them cut this deal. And, you know, the one saving grace of Jim Stewart's deals with Atlantic was that he had put a key man clause in that if Jerry Wexler yeah. left Atlantic, you know, the deal was off. And, and that's how uh, stacks wasn't absorbed into the Warner brothers conglomerate when Atlantic sold out. If only right. Al Bell uh, had thought to do that, because Clive Davis, right around the yeah. time they finalized the deal, Clive Davis's uh, empire comes crashing down. Yes, like within weeks, and 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 the finalized deal is finalized in a hotel room discussion between Al and Clive, 
it's not even committed to paper. And that's the ultimate issue because Todd gets, uh, they accuse him of uh, paying for his son's bar mitzvah with company money and, and throw him out on the street. They, they were, there was some kind of, you know, there was all kinds of stuff going on there. Yeah, and, you, you've and got Todd, a litany of, of financial abuse. He was accused of uh, uh, $54,000 to redecorate his Manhattan apartment, $20,000 for his son's bar mitzvah, $13,000 for a summer house in Beverly Hills. Um, you know, and then and then Clive turned Songbird on the stand and 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 ratted out the whole modern payola structure of the record industry in the '70s. So it was just a complete disaster. And then Columbia basically punished Stax for it for their entire relationship. I mean, they would literally ship records off to Columbia and have them returned years later on the same pallets and the same wrapping they'd sent them out. Exactly. The 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 deal that Al says he struck with Clive was a very unusual deal. And, and several people at Columbia, like, and so Columbia couldn't adapt to it because it was so against their corporate structure and they didn't have Clive at the top telling them to, to do it. Al, um, Al wanted to make, you know, all the profits he could. And he realized there was profit in the packaging, in the, in the pressing of records and the, packaging of them. So his deal was, as you've noted, stacks not only cut the tape, like a lot of places, they'll cut the tape, ship the tape off to Columbia, then Columbia creates the album art, presses the records, packages them, and sells them. But Stax did all of that, and then shipped the product to Columbia. And Al's deal said it, that he was getting paid on product sent to Columbia, which seems unbelievable that basically the more you send, the more that Stax sends to Columbia, the more they're going to be paid. You know, it seems like that, that seems like a very unusual deal. Yeah. But, and, and if you're going to cut a deal like that, you got to get it written down on paper. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I want to introduce the last song uh, that we're going to feature on the show. Uh, appropriate to apropos of Clive Davis and Al Bell and Johnny Baylor and all these big personalities is <laughs> Gene Knight's Mr. Big Stuff. And this is a song that uh, Don Davis, the hit maker that they had brought down from Detroit, had, had licensed and rejected. And it wasn't until he left and people are going through the vaults and Al Bell hears the bass line through the wall that, that they yeah, exactly. say, wow, exactly. that's a hit. So let's hear it, Mr. Big Stuff. <laughs> So that was the number one R&B and number two pop hit, Mr. Big Stuff by Gene Knight, which I was first introduced to as a, a sample by Schooly D in the late uh, 80s or early 90s. But I think... Uh, oh, it was Heavy D. It was Heavy D. Heavy, heavy D, D did it, but so did uh, Schooly D. Schooly D did it first. Okay. And, and, and I didn't know that. Schooly D never gets any credit. <laughs> um, I'm killing yeah, but that's 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 the side. I'll do another show on School D sometime. I've got a personal fetish for the dude because I saw him live with a rock band in the late '80s. But back to topic. So not only does Al Bell sign what's ultimately a disastrous deal with Columbia Records, uh, mainly because of the immediate downfall of Clive Davis, the Columbia president, but Johnny Baylor is busted. Uh, at the airport with $129,000 in cash. And this is long <laughs> before, you know, our modern era where you can't carry, you know, of asset forfeiture and different things where nobody but a fool carries more than $9,000 in cash at any time. But even then, you know, a black man with $129,000 in his briefcase was just too suspicious for the authorities to let pass. And so this they, tells they, us about They this. actually, they... When he gets caught at the airport, this is right when they're beginning to 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 X-ray things, and there'd been a hijacking on a flight that went Memphis, Birmingham, Birmingham, somewhere. So now they're they're they set up a X-ray. You know, it has it, it was very new and not sophisticated. So it's at the gate, not at the not at the concourse. So Johnny Baylor's stuff. You know, he says, "Sure, I'll 
in my briefcase through there and they say, hey, uh, sir, would you open that up? And sure, I'll open it up. And it's full of cash. They go, sir, would you come with us? Sure, I'll come with you. And then they say, you, you know, they accuse him of robbing a bank because no one in Memphis can imagine a black person who's, who's legally got all that much money. And, uh, and when they call the cops and the cops say, no, no bank robberies reported. They actually let him get on the plane with the money. But when he lands in Birmingham, he's the, uh, the feds bust him and the IRS comes down on him. And they also find a, a check from stacks for, I want to say it's for $500,000, you know, so stacks. So not only is Johnny Baylor caught in the crosshairs, but suddenly stacks is too. So now that, so, so now we've got this deal falling apart at Columbia. We've got several federal agencies investigating stacks. And it turns out that the loan officer at the bank where they've been getting all these loans from is crooked. And he's, he gets busted for embezzling and they try to implicate Al Bell personally. And there's, you know, it's the second perfect storm, just like at the end of the first half of stacks, these three forces come together and form a whirlpool that takes the company down. It happens again here. Yeah, and 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 Al Bell uh, is not only crushed in the corporate boardroom by uh, the president of CBS um, in, a, in a dramatic personal confrontation you tell, but he's he's brought on trial along with the union planner bank exec, and and he's ultimately acquitted. The union planner guys get convicted, and Johnny Baylor is ultimately uh, cleared by the IRS many years later. But you know the f- function of that and the loose accounting. And then what Colombia does just by refusing, you know, it's sort of what like the U.S. That's is doing the, to Venezuela right now. That they refuse to pay them, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, that's, that's that's the final straw because you've got this company with this massive staff. You know, Al has hired just everything is solved by hiring a new department. So there's something like 200 employees at Stacks. They're all getting top wage. Uh, Isaac Hayes is. Is has had a falling out with Al and is uh, not making hits. Um, Columbia is not selling the records, not even sending them to the stores to, to be sold. And with no money coming in and all these horrors going on, they they can't get the bank. Actually, the bank, one more note on the bank. The, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, comes after the bank and says, you know, we're going to take you down. That's how corrupt you are. And there's a new president who has, in his first meeting with Al Bell, immediately falls into race talk and, and you know, bitter uh, enemies are established between Al and, and this guy at the bank. Um, and, and so the, the bank has to save itself. You know, people, it's like what any drowning person would do. The bank calls the loans on stacks. They know stacks can't pay them. But they also know that they've got to call them and they've got to get what they can get out of stacks. And, and, and without the money coming in and with the demand for money from the bank, um, it, yeah. it begins to go downhill fast, but not really that fast. I mean, it takes like it, dra- it drags out over about two years of just slow. Um, the, you know, the noose tightens slowly and the attrition of people at the, label is awful. Uh, David Porter, who, who was there from the very beginning to the very end, and who whose songwriting is still bringing him income, he's actually, you know, lining up the last like half dozen or so employees and asking them, what do they need? You know, he's paying them personally just to keep people afloat. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the, Whirlpool also sucks in Jim Stewart, who in the second disastrous yeah. business decision of what had otherwise been a very fortunate business career, uh, he had sold out for cash, uh, got out clean, retired young, was very wealthy. And then at some point, he personally guaranteed all these loans to Union Planner and ends yeah. up losing everything in this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like, I think, you know, I think, gosh, how did he... Why would he sign away, you know, his children's future 
as this personal guarantee against a company that was in such trouble. And in a way, I think that Stax was another child of his. He wasn't so much signing away his children's future as saving one of, trying to save one of his children. And uh, yeah, he goes from this huge sale, huge cash sale, and with a continued like five years of receiving 60000 you know, mid-1970 dollars per month. I mean, a remarkable income. And he signs it all away and loses every bit of it. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's the kind of shitty thing that this country does to people who do great things. I think, and <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I want to I want to touch on another tragedy that that happened around this time, and that's the tragic death of Al Jackson Jr., the great drummer, uh, murdered in his home, and what his his uh, wife claimed was a, a home invasion. But this is a woman who had shot him previously in a previous domestic dispute. Like so, three months earlier, yeah. Yeah, yeah so... It's, a, it's an officially unsolved case that is still open, I'm told, um, by the Memphis Police Department. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, Duck Dunn says, you know, Al was shot five times in the back, first while standing, then they laid him on a carpet and shot him some more. The bullets went through him point blank. It was just, I still have dreams about it. And... Uh, you know that that was the death knell of of the MGs as a band, and really, uh, you know, sucked the heart out of Stacks. But ultimately, and and you know, and then the the catalog and the publishing and everything is sold for pennies on the dollar by you know people who have no way to evaluate its value and and also no right. insight to the coming retro boom of the 80s and the cd explosion of the 90s you know this is probably a billion dollars worth of assets that were were you know squandered at auction nothing yeah nothing 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 and yeah it it was decisions by you know accountants wearing ties about you know art made you know without ties and these guys knew nothing about what they were what they were doing and, it, and didn't care for them. It was, a, it was, you know, it was, how do we turn this into liquid assets so we can resolve this bank problem? That's all it yeah. was. Yeah. And, and, and it, it was very short sighted on the part of the city fathers of Memphis who, I mean, you never come out and quite say it, but to me, it's pretty clear that the powers that be had had enough of Al Bell and they had had enough of black people flashing money around Memphis and, they destroyed, you know, what at the time was one of the biggest companies in Memphis. And Memphis music has never really recovered from that. You've seen other cities like Atlanta has become the main um, African-American music center in the South in the, in the 21st century. And you just wonder if Stax had been able to stay in the game or maybe even if Jim Stewart had just held on to his money and been able to get back in there, uh, you know, if things would have been different. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, great... I got to correct you on, I got to, I got to, one do thing it, to... Do it. Always happy to be corrected. I, I don't think the city had had enough of them, uh, of Al Bell flashing his money or, you know, of, of, a, of a successful black company. They had, they, because they really refused to acknowledge it most of the time. So that when they began to see it, you know, when, when, when stacks became so big that they could no longer deny it, um, that's when they went after it. It's not. It's not so much of having enough as being sure that there won't be too much of this. You know, it's like the city. It's rural redneck racism at its core. But for the fact that the Mississippi River is here, which made it the distribution center, it, it was the last small town on the line. You know, the train went from small town to small town picking up cotton and then it came here and dumped it all. So this was just another small town that grew huge. So that that ingrained racism has been really hard to clear from the city's mindset. Thankfully, I see it, you know, in the past 10, 20 years, it's diminished a lot. But, you know, it took a long damn time to kind of clear out the cobweb. 
Yeah, for sure. And 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 you tell the story in the afterward of how you know eventually they they rebuilt the Stack Studio and 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 it became a yeah. educational center. That's kind of the happy ending of the documentary is you show some of the original Stacks artists, the Memphis Horns and 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 David Porter and others teaching young kids in Memphis uh, to play music. And so so the the torch was passed. Um, yeah, but it's but, an amazing resurrection. You know, it just brings it back to that mythic tragedy and became so huge twice it got uh destroyed so completely twice and yet again has this phoenix and i highly recommend to any of your listeners coming through memphis to go by the stacks museum because it is it the original blueprints for the building were found the place is built on the original site to specification on the on the exterior the interior is a great museum there's the Saks Academy School right behind there, and you see these kids, you know, going to school. They've had like 100% college acceptance for something like their entire 12 years of existence. Um, it's a highly uh, rewarding um, coda to the story. Yeah, and absolutely. And if you're in Memphis as a tourist, I mean, it's it's all about eating the barbecue, visiting Graceland, visiting Sun Studios, and don't miss Stacks because it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's a great part of the experience. And so, Robert Gordon, it's been just an awesome treat having you on the show uh, and talking about uh, this great book, Respect Yourself: Stacks Records and the Soul Explosion. Also, a great documentary originally shot for PBS. So, thank you so much. This has been so fun. And this is Nate Wilcox for Let It Roll. sure and subscribe to the let it roll podcast on itunes soundcloud or podomatic and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com come back next week for nate's discussion with author jonathan gould about his biography of otis redding Respect Yourself, Stacks Records and the Soul Explosion by Robert Gordon is available from Bloomsbury and can be found wherever fine books are sold.